Great to hear you and for being here again. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it was Robert Fulgham. You may or may not know this name, but you might know what Robert Fulgham has created. He's carved out a nice niche for himself with his material, All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You ever seen those posters around? Wonderful. I hear that. Thank you. I heard a voice from behind me, and I was a little afraid at first. I didn't know you were still up there, Greg. Here's some of his material. He'll write this in his posters. He said, all you ever need to know you learned in kindergarten, including these things. Number one, share everything. Number two, play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess, he writes in all caps. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and drink some and draw some and paint some and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamster and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die, and so do we. And then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word that you learned, the biggest word of all, look. All right, Robert Fulgham. All you ever need to know you learned in kindergarten. Really good stuff. Good stuff, except that when you run into someone who has just received a cancer diagnosis, you're never going to say to them, you should have cookies and milk. Take a nap this afternoon, and hopefully things will be all right for you, right? Good stuff, simple stuff, true enough, but not nuanced enough for our adult experiences, right? Good stuff, but not enough to carry the weight of adult life, is it? It's good, but just not enough. And I want to begin on this New Year's with you a series in which we're going to take a similar view to our Christian faith. Because there are some things that are very simple about the faith, but aren't nuanced enough to really handle the pressures of adult life. There are some things that we can say as Christians to one another that seem simple, not unlike Robert Fulgham's list, like let go and let God. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Just have enough faith. God never gives you more than you can, what? Handle. Are they all true? Yes. Just like Fulgham's list, absolutely true. But they're not nuanced enough to handle the weight of adult life. And when they're not nuanced enough, and I grew up and you grew up in your adult world and your adult experiences, we leave behind the simple things of life. And when we leave those behind, and if our view and our understanding of God doesn't come with us as we grow, there grows a divide and a separation between the faith, if you will, the God of our childhood and the God of our adult life. So this is a series in which we're going to try to tease out for you Some of these perspectives on God. My hope for you in this series is that you will see God in a new way. I want to, if you can imagine it this way, I want to kind of take you on a journey in the woods, not to get you lost, but imagine it this way. Today we're meeting together to talk about where we're going. Introductions to series sometimes feel like introductions 
to series. They're necessary. They're helpful as guides of where we're going. Next Sunday, we're going to be going into the woods and starting to clear the brush away. Because next week, I want to draw out for you some false views of God that cloud our understanding of who God really is. And the path isn't really as clear as we want it to be. In the third week, we're going to be in a clearing. And we're going to see, I hope, as clear a view as I can give to you of God and who he is. I want to give to you that picture. And then we're going to sit there in that clearing kind of around the campfire, if you will. We're going to start asking harder questions there by week four. And we're going to ask, can this God of week three really survive in a world where there's evil and suffering? How does that work? By week five, we're going to ask the question, can a supernatural God survive in a scientific world? We're going to still be kind of sitting around the campfire asking those questions. And then we're going to start moving back out into the real world in which we live. We're going to ask two questions to finish the series in the last two weeks. How can I know this God, number one, through the Bible, and number two, through Jesus Christ? If this God exists, how can I know him through the scriptures and then through Jesus Christ? So that is where we're going in the series. So let me make it clear at the beginning. This is not a series designed to answer all of your questions about what we call Christian apologetics. We're not going to try to tackle all the questions that people have about why they should believe at all in God. We're going to answer some of those, but not all of them, and they're great reasons uh, that people have for believing and great questions that people have. And let me say this, if you're sitting here this morning and you're uh, new to the church, you're coming back to the church as it's New Year's and you want to kind of step back into doing the right thing as you see it and, and get going, good, keep stepping into that. We want to encourage that. But I also want to say this, if you have been in a situation in your life where you're growing up now and you're beginning to see your own faith as your own, and you've been kind of wondering and waiting for the time when faith, Christian faith, becomes so clear to you that you can't reject it anymore. If you've been waiting for a Loctite argument that convinces you that you should believe that the God of the Bible is true, this series is not for you. Because that doesn't exist. Okay? There is no Loctite argument that anybody can give you to convince you without any doubt whatsoever that Christianity is true. But I would also argue that there's no Loctite argument that anybody can give you to prove that anything is true. If you were to go to college and step into an intro to philosophy class, you might at some point along the way have the professor uh, engage you along this line of conversation. He might say, if you were me, he might say, Mr. Rogers, why don't you prove to me that you exist? This is philosophy class, remember. To which my default reaction is, "Uh, buddy, you just talk to me, and I'm talking back to you, Do we really need to have this conversation? Clearly, I exist. You're here. I'm here. There we go. To which the professor would say, well, prove to me that your cognitive faculties can be trusted. In other words, prove to me that your ability to see, understand, and reason can be trusted. You see me, therefore you think I exist. But prove to me that your sight can be trusted. Prove to me that what you deduce from what you observe can be trusted. Prove to me that your cognitive faculties can be trusted. To which I would have to default and say, well, I know that I can see you because I see you. 
which becomes circular reasoning immediately. And I have to beg the question at some point, I cannot prove by my cognitive faculties that my cognitive faculties are true. Does that make sense? Like I can't, it's like defining the word by using the word. We can't do that. And so therefore there is no logical argument for actually proving anything that is water tight, that is bulletproof, that will beyond a shadow of a doubt convince you that something is true. And so if you are waiting for, just waiting for that magic bullet or that golden key or whatever it is that that can be said that finally, totally, without a doubt, convinces you that Christianity is true, I'm just telling you it doesn't exist. But it doesn't exist for anything at all. It's just not possible. You always have to assume some things in order to find any truth. So I'd like to suggest to you that as we get into the scriptures today and as we talk about who this God is, that my interest is not in developing a watertight anything because it just can't be done on this side of eternity. But I want to invite you to kind of go on this journey with me, to kind of clear the brush next week, to see who this God is and to walk into this world of what we see of this God. Now, for some of you, you don't need that watertight argument. Like, you're in. You get it. You understand there's always going to be a disconnect between what you know and what you believe. That's part of faith. But for some of you, we need to keep growing up in our faith and what we experience. In prepping for this series, I've read several books. One of them, J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. I'd like to recommend that to you as good reading on your own. If you're in a situation now in the new year where you're saying, I want to grow in my own faith, Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small, good book to read. It'll help you in this series if you want to do that. And I love the way he opens this book. And here's what he says, and he's speaking to Christians. This book was written many, uh, many years ago. And here's what he says. He says, the trouble with many people today is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. He clarifies that a little bit further. He says, while their experience of life has grown in a score of directions and their mental horizons have been expanded to the point of bewilderment by world events and by scientific discoveries, their ideas of God have remained largely static. He's going to continue his quote in a minute, but do you see what he's saying so far? As we grow and our experience of life grows in a score of directions and all of a sudden we're learning new things, our mental horizons have been expanded to the point of bewilderment, we cannot process why world events are happening the way that they are, and by the amazement of scientific discoveries, their ideas of God have remained largely unmoved, static. My brain is growing over here in my experiences of the world and the scientific world and all that I observe, but by and large... The God of a five-year-old Sunday school boy or girl is about the same God that I still believe in. Meanwhile, I'm experiencing things over here. And so he goes on to write this. It is obviously impossible for an adult to worship the conception of God that exists in the mind of a child of Sunday school age unless he is prepared to deny his own experience of life. He's saying adults who experience the adult nuanced world are not capable of giving their heart over in worship to a Sunday school God unless they deny that these experiences of life happen, which is foolishness. Just cannot be done. So then he says this, if by a great effort of will he does do this, he will always be secretly afraid lest some new truth may expose the juvenility of his faith, how young it is. And then he finishes this way. And it will always be by such an effort that he either worships or serves a God who is really too small to command his adult loyalty and cooperation. If our experience of life 
does not match in terms of its growth, our, our growth of our understanding of God, we are going to end up with, Phillips would argue, and I would agree with him, a mismatched faith. That we're going to maybe, maybe by some sheer willpower, still believe in a five or seven or nine or ten year old version of God and deny that those things are happening in the world. But he's saying that is never going to command enough attention, command adult loyalty of the heart to worship a God who cannot have answers for the world in which you experience. It's not going to work. And then Phillips will argue, not only does this impact the people in the church, now he's going to say this impacts people outside the church. And here's what he says about people outside the church. It often appears to those outside the church that this is precisely the attitude of Christian people. If they are not strenuously defending an outgrown conception of God, then they are cherishing a hothouse God who could only exist between the pages of the Bible or inside the four walls of a church. In other words, the people, he's saying, non-church will look at people inside the church and say, this doesn't make sense. Your God can only exist in a world where you agree to gather with people and not ask the hard questions. This is like growing a plant in a greenhouse or a hothouse. It isn't exposed to the elements of the world. You're protecting it from real life. Come on. Plant it outside where storms come and floods come. Plant it in the real world, please. Your God can exist in the hothouse or the greenhouse as long as you want. But why would I ever come to the greenhouse? I don't live in the greenhouse. We live in the real world. And he concludes this with a very, very difficult statement. He says this, Therefore, to join in with the worship of a church would be to become a party to a piece of mass hypocrisy and to buy a sense of security at the price of the sense of truth. And many men of goodwill will not consent to such a transaction. In other words, if the ask on the person who doesn't believe in Jesus is, please come to our church so that you can give up a sense of truth and we'll give you a sense of peace. He's saying, most people will not consent to that. Why would I give up the sense of my adult experience just to buy a sense of peace and satisfaction? And this is where Phillips leaves us, saying, let's take the God out of the greenhouse. Let's grow. Let's grow in our awareness and our understanding, our experience of who God is. As our adult experiences grow, so too does our faith and our understanding and the clarity around God himself. We're not interested in just cherishing a Sunday school God forever. And this is why one of my favorite profs at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Jeff Bingham, who is about six feet, six inches tall, and would often just stand over class like this, rather intimidating when he would call on you to answer a question uh, in his demeanor, but very good guy. This is why Jeff Bingham, and I've shared this with some of you before, would say this, the most important thought that you can think is the thought you think of when you think of God. And this is why he says that. The most important thought you can ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. Because if your God or my God is this tame seven-year-old version of a nice grandfather in the sky who every now and then gives you Christmas gifts and you pray to him when you might need to, then that just doesn't command my loyalty. I'm not interested in serving that. It doesn't work outside of the greenhouse. It doesn't work in the storms of life. I'm not going to take the prescription of cookies and milk and an afternoon nap. 
I need more to command my heart and to capture my imagination for this God of the universe. The most important thought you can ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. This is why we want this series to land for you and for me. The most important thought you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. Now, I want to take you this morning to a place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul introduced people to a God. It was bigger than they expected. It was broader than they expected. And deeper than they expected. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, I still invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, there's Bibles in the pew around you, and we'd be glad to give that to you as our gift to you this morning. If you have uh, a Bible on your mobile device or whatever, feel free to flip over there. Acts 17, I'll be reading from the New International Version. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts will be found in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Uh, but Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to land. And here's the deal with that uh, for context, just so you know what's happening, because we're jumping into verse 16. Um, Paul is a uh, on a missionary journey. He's a disciple of uh, he's a he's a follower of Christ. Right? He's uh, now a missionary, um, and he has been to the beginning of the chapter. He's been to Thessalonica. All right, big big name, small city, but he's been to Thessalonica. And here's what happens in, Th- in Thessalonica. I can't say that quickly. I'm going to stumble over my words. He's been to Thessalonica over here, and his party, him and a couple other people, would go to the synagogue and they would preach about Jesus. And this is a very new thing, a very new thing, and explaining the resurrection and all that. And then what happened is um, Jews were jealous of what was happening. And all of a sudden, attention, interest, and they could see it. Money was going to be going to this new venture. And so the Jews got very angry, and they went to the house of Jason, who was hosting Paul and his companions, and they demanded that they put Paul out so they could deal with him. Well, Paul wasn't home at the time. When Paul finally gets home, Jason says to them, listen, the guys came, angry mob, not a good plan for you to stay in my house or in Thessalonica. You should move on to Berea. So the next deal they do. They move from Thessalonica to Berea, and Paul does the same thing. He goes to the synagogues, reasons in the synagogues with the people, and again, the people from Thessalonica who were angry that they couldn't find Paul at Jason's house hear, what? You gave him a heads up we were coming? He went to where? Where was that? Berea? We know how to get to Berea. So they come over to Berea. Same angry people from Thessalonica come to Berea, and they try to do the same thing. So Paul and his party split up. And Paul ends up in Athens, which is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Athens was the um, intellectual capital of the day. Great universities, great thought centers were here in Athens. We had people like the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans are going to show up in the text, which is why I'm telling you about them. Epicureans believed uh, that the highest goal of man was pleasure and happiness. And Stoics uh, believed that... um, Everything has a purpose and a plan, and your job is to find that purpose and kind of line yourself up with that. So tragedy and triumph, they all have a purpose. Find it. And when you find it, you'll find true life. So people coming from different philosophies, different perspectives of how to attack life. And here we read the beginning of chapter 17, verse 16. I'm going to pick up the text there. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, now, I don't know what you do when you're waiting for people. Well, I probably know what you do if if you have a smartphone, you start 
playing on your smartphone while you're waiting, right? Well, Paul didn't have a smartphone to play on. So instead of doing that in Athens, he was greatly distressed. He looks around and he sees the city was full of idols. We're actually talking about physical idols, material idols. He could visually see them. And so he reasoned in the synagogue, like he had done in Thessalonica and Berea, with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace that day by day were those who happened to be there. So a group of, again, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, people with different viewpoints on life and the meaning of it, began to dispute with him. This is, after all, what they do in Athens. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. So all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking. Wouldn't that be great for some of you others? Like, I cannot believe people would do that. But they did nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is what's happening in Athens. You have people who are coming and meeting and talking and philosophizing about the meaning of life. The Areopagus is a basically a big council or a meeting of the, the thinkers and the leaders of the time. And so in the Areopagus, you have Epicureans, you have Stoics, you have other people who just are listening in, who are trying to figure out how do we get on top of life? What's the best approach for the meaning and fulfillment of life? Asking, by the way, the same questions that you and I are asking today. Why do bad things happen to quote-unquote good people? Is there a God? Is there a meaning in my life beyond this? Should I live? What's the point? What is the point of it all? Same questions that we continue to, to ask today. So Paul then stood up, verse 22, in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you an excellent start for Paul. Excellent start, starting with what they know. And he's saying, by the way, you guys were so prepared for any possible scenario, you even have an altar to a God that you can't even identify. You're smart people because you don't want to offend any possible God. You have the unknown God. I'm going to tell you what he is like. Verse 24, he begins to describe him. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. It's very important to see how Paul starts this. Okay, Look at those verses again. This is a picture of a God who is very big, not small. The God who made the world and everything in it, he says, Paul says, is the Lord not just of earth, but of this other realm called heaven. And he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And so the idols around you that you see are not ever going to be able to contain the glory of the God of the universe. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. In other words, he's saying, guys, You are trying to get on top of life. You're trying to get on top of life by answering questions about the meaning of life. Like you're trying to figure out if only we could, if only we could answer the right questions. If only we could answer the right questions, we could figure out the purpose of life. Like, in other words, if we can get God down to our size, we need to understand Him and bring Him. We need to get on top of God. And Paul's saying, hold on. 
Let me start it this way. God's bigger than you and bigger than you will ever be. And his capabilities go beyond your understanding. You will never get on top of him. You will never understand it all. He is not served by human hands. As if you will ever be able to put into perspective the scope of the God who gave you life. It begins by inverting their entire approach to how they see God. And he goes on, verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Paul speaking, going back to creation and Adam, appealing to the original commission to be fruitful and multiply. We're talking here about a sovereign, holy God. And then God did this so that, verse 27, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Here Paul is quoting two different poets, Epimenides and also Eratus. So in other words, he's engaged with their culture and saying, this is even what your poets say. Your poets say this. Let me pr- provide meaning for that. What they're, what they're meaning, even in their reaching for meaning, they're meaning the God who made them. Like They can't put it in these words, but I'm going to put it in words for you. This is the God they're talking about. The God who is bigger than you will ever imagine, who is the author of life, who has given everything to you. This is the God who I serve. Verse 29. This is where it starts to get interesting, because up to this point, it's ideas. Up to this point in his speech, it's simply like, here's my ideas, here's what I believe, here's what I think the Bible teaches. And then he goes on in verse 29 to start talking about implications, and here's where it starts to get heated. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a big word, to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And at the news of the resurrection, things get heated. Because now Paul is moving from, here's my ideas about this big God of the universe, to, boys, time to respond. Time to repent. God has given proof, he says, through this man, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. And at this, at this, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. That's about an average response for the Areopagus. At that, Paul left the council... And verse 34 says, A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of other people. Then when he called for a response, when there was an opportunity given, some responded and some simply did not. And here's Paul stepping into an intellectual center where philosophy was discussed all the time, saying, let me explain to you the God of the universe. And he, in this short few verses, sets a foundation upon which we can build an entire series and beyond, thinking about the scope of the God that we serve. That our questions, while valid, will never be able to encapsulate God and put him into our box. That we're never going to be able to get on top of him in that way, but rather he is limitless and beyond our understanding to that degree. He created life. He made that. That he had this plan from the very beginning of time, from Adam on through. And that finally, resurrection proves, if you will, that God's plan was perfect from the beginning, that he has brought life to us by beating death. Now, some people are saying, I don't think your proof is valid. I don't agree. I'm going to sneer at that. Others are like, that makes a lot of sense. I'm in. Again, there's no Loctite proof 
for anything. But this is where Paul lands. So here's, here's where I come. If I ask the question, this, this question here, why does this matter? Like, why does it matter that Paul is even having this conversation here and even that we are having the conversation here? Why does this matter? In a way, the way that Greg introduced the worship set this morning, without him knowing it, has really tied into the point here. So we talk about resolutions and things that move and shape us. We realize that over time things change, and resolutions that we had five years ago might be different than resolutions we have now. That there are some resolutions that are very fleeting in their perspective, others that are very helpful. Not against resolutions, not against planning, not against goal setting. It's all very good. That helps get things done. Do that. But in perspective, if all that we have, all that we pursue, is progress in this life, why? To what end? So that we can make this world better for our children? Fair enough. And what should they do? Make it better for their children? What should their children do? Make it better for their children? To, to what end? J.B. Phillips, coming back to him, here's what he says. Yet this, human progress is to many the greatest value for which to live. And we know people like that. Like the, the greatest reason, the reason to live, the greatest reason for that, for this, to live is for human progress. If they stop short of the final scene, they may persuade themselves that the eventual happiness of our descendants a million years hence is a worthy ideal for which to live and to die. But, if the end is nothing, sheer non-existence, surely no reasonable person can regard it as an ideal to command the whole loyalty of an of a adult heart and mind. If the end of all of this human progress that we make is nothing... How in the world can I give my heart and soul to that? And this is why when I ask why does it matter, and I, I skip the slide quickly, because we need something of adequate strength to bear the weight of our soul. You need something of adequate strength to bear the weight of your soul. And sometimes we think marriage will do it. And sometimes we think having kids will do it. And sometimes we think achievements will do it. And sometimes we think moving will do it. And sometimes we think breaking up will do it. And sometimes we think money. That certainly will do it. I need something upon which I can bear and place the weight of my soul to find meaning and rest and peace. We need something to bear the weight of our soul that is of adequate strength. And human progress, just getting better, is just not enough. It doesn't command my adult loyalty. <laughs> and I'll do that. But it doesn't command my worship. It doesn't capture my imagination, liven my soul. And here's what J.I. Packer will write. He says this, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has for what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God. And this is why I want this series for you. So that as you rotate your life around something, and you make decisions for yourself, for your marriage, for your family, for your children, for your business, for your friends, that the, that the thing that you rotate your life around will be worthy of bearing the weight of your soul. That when you get out of the greenhouse and into the world and the storms hit and the floods hit, that you can hold on to something that actually matters. That it can be held on with great strength and vitality and worship. And human progress can't be. 
It is not enough. It's not enough to command your adult loyalty and your affections. And a five-year-old Sunday school God isn't either. If all that I ever needed to know about God I learned in Sunday school, then I would not trust that God. And I don't think you would either. Adult life is too nuanced for that. You and I need something with clarity to capture, to bear the weight of our soul. Thus, this series. You can have, and I can have, a childlike faith without holding on to a childlike God. Next week, with you, I want to step into the woods and start clearing the brush because there is confusion over what this God actually is and who he really is. Next week with you, I want to clear out some false conceptions of who God actually is. I'd love to see you here. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be in your word and to start this series and to start the conversation about what our lives revolve around as we begin this new year and step back into a desire to start things off right on the right foot in the new year with our faith with being here at church here on Sunday morning. I pray that you would uh, give us the kind of clarity that we need as we keep growing in our understanding of our faith and that we would understand this God that we serve. Father, I pray that you give us um, the courage and the wisdom to ask the right questions, the grace when we don't have the answers, and the strength to keep walking this journey. Help us to measure and weigh out what we use to bear our souls right now, to lean into for strength and wisdom and perspective, to put in proper perspective the weight and value that we give, and for the places where we just feel like it's difficult to pull passion and affection and imagination, creativity for the things of God, would you Show us where we've missed our understanding of who you are. Show us where we have stepped off of our growth in terms of knowing who you are as a good, strong, close, transcendent Father. So God, I thank you for the time that we can share and that we will be able to share in this series. I pray that you would keep growing us and moving us to believe and trust in you that no matter what may come, that our faith can hold no matter what storms of life may come. We thank you for your love and your care for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.